for about $5, you can buy a 4-inch plastic bobblehead Jesus that bounces on a metal spring and adheres firmly to the dashboard of your car. One advertisement for this product says, you can stick him where you need forgiveness and he will guide you through the valley of gridlock. The dashboard Jesus has became a cultural phenomenon. In the song, Plastic Jesus, Billy Idol sings, with my plastic Jesus, I'll go far with my plastic Jesus sitting on the dashboard of my car. Paul Newman sang it in the movie Cool Hand Luke. The words begin, well, I don't care if it rains or freezes as long as I have my plastic Jesus sitting on the dashboard of my car. To lots of people, Jesus, church, and Christianity are just cultural trappings, but they're really not life-changing realities. Today, many people see Jesus like a plastic statue sitting on a dashboard, smiling, robed, with a halo suspended above his head. But that superstitious or sentimental view of Jesus is a myth. Jesus of Nazareth was no plastic saint. He is a real-world kind of Savior. It's not important whether you have Jesus on the dashboard of your car, but it is vital to know that he is living in your heart. And be sure of this. He isn't plastic. He's powerful. He's not small. He's infinite. He's not a good luck token. He is the risen Lord of time and eternity. And we're going to see a little bit of that glory shine through this morning. Welcome back to our study in the Gospel of John, verse 29, please. Therefore, Pilate came out to them and said, What accusation are you bringing against this man? They answered and said to him, If this man were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. Last week, we observed what it looks like to strain at a gnat and swallow a camel, as the religious leaders there had no problem murdering an innocent man, but they still wanted to remain kosher by not entering into a Gentile's residence. So in deference to the religious scruples, Pilate went out to meet the Jews outside of his residence. Their refusal to enter the praetorium forced him to shuttle back and forth from inside the building where Jesus was to outside where the accusers stood. For a man of Pilate's background, judging Jesus should have been a very simple matter. I mean, if the Jews want this Galilean dead, what did he care? But it was not a simple matter. We know from Matthew's account that while Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. And for a culture that put great stock in dreams, this must have already shaken Pilate even before he meets this Nazarene king. Pilate's question, what accusation do you bring against this man, formally opened the legal proceedings. The Jewish leaders had undoubtedly already communicated with him about this case since the Roman troops took part in the arrest. They evidently expected Pilate to just rubber stamp their judgment and sentence Jesus to death so they could all just get on with their day. Instead, exercising his prerogative as governor, he ordered a fresh hearing 
over which he would preside. But the last thing the Jewish leaders wanted was a trial. They wanted a death sentence, and they wanted Pilate to be an executioner and not a judge. They knew that their charge that Jesus was guilty of blasphemy because he claimed to be God incarnate would never stand up in a Roman court. They are in danger of this whole thing being thrown out of court, and that just won't do. Look at verse 31 with me. So Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, We are not permitted to put anyone to death. This happened so that the word of Jesus, which he said, indicating what kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled. Now, when they say that they are not permitted to put anyone to death, that is actually a little misleading. What I mean is there seems to be occasions where they did stone people to death, as in the case of Stephen, and they tried to do the same thing to the Apostle Paul. It would seem that the Romans sometime would just look the other way unless the vigilante stoning would cause a greater riot or even a greater disturbance. But in this case, they wanted Jesus to be formally executed so that the whole nation would know about it. But they didn't realize that even this was all part of the plan of God. What do I mean? John tells us that Jesus even controlled the kind of death that awaited him. Caiaphas, the high priest, and the religious establishment wanted Jesus crucified. They wanted him displayed to the people as being cursed. Deuteronomy 21.23 says, Anyone who is hung on a tree is under the curse of God. So Jesus had to be crucified which, by the way, was invented by the Persians. You see, the Persians believed that the land, the soil, was holy. And so if they were going to execute a person, they would lift him up off of the ground and pin him to a cross and leave him there until the vultures came and picked him clean. So the religious, religious leaders thought if Jesus were crucified, the Jews would then have to look at him and say, this cannot be the blessed one. This cannot be the Messiah. This is a cursed imposter. But they failed to remember or did not know that Jesus had already prophesied his mode of death when he said, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. It never entered their minds probably that they were fulfilling prophecy. Verse 33, please. Therefore, Pilate entered the praetorium again and summoned Jesus and said to him, You are the king of the Jews? Jesus answered and said, Are you saying this on your own, or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests hand you over to me. What have you done? As I've grown older, I've learned that life is not always as it seems. In God's economy, there is often a mighty reversal of appearances. For instance, the meek rule, the least are the greatest, the poor are rich, the weak are strong, the unlearned are wise. And here, the defenseless, beaten Christ was actually holding court on Pilate, the Roman Empire, the Sanhedrin, 
and us. In all four Gospels, the word you is emphatic. And although this is just a legal question, it is at first an incredulous statement. Are you the king of the Jews? You? It was no wonder, really, that Pilate reacted that way. For Jesus was stained with bloody sweat from Gethsemane, and his face was already swollen from the beatings. But despite appearances, Jesus was still king. Things haven't changed. People look at Christ and Christianity with either apathy or hostility. But he is still king, and Christianity is still the only way to God. C.A. Spurgeon wrote this more than a hundred years ago when he said, To this day, pure Christianity in its outward appearances is an equally unattractive object and wears upon its surface few royal tokens. It is without form or comeliness, and when men see it, they see no beauty that they should desire it. True, there is a nominal Christianity which is accepted and approved of men, but the pure gospel is still despised and rejected. The real Christ of today among the populace is unknown and unrecognized as much as he was in his nation 1,800 years ago. Do you really want to know who I am, Jesus asked Pilate. As we have all discovered, a lot of times people will ask questions without not really wanting to know the answer. They just want to argue. We would be wise to learn whether people are asking for answers or asking to argue. And if they are asking just to argue, don't cast your pearl before swine. That way you will avoid endless hours of argumentation, which is going to get you nowhere. Pilate's reply to Jesus showed what the Romans thought of the Jews, for he said, Am I a Jew? Now, no doubt there was an obvious note of disdain and sarcasm in his voice. But where there is smoke, there must be fire. So Pilate asked, what have you done to irritate them so? Verse 36, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting so I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, So, you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this purpose I have been born, and for this I have came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of truth listens to my voice. Here we have Jesus before Pilate. But we must never forget that in another and far more important sense, it was really Pilate before Jesus. Now, in the former, Jesus was found and found innocent, and rightly so. But in the latter, Pilate was tried and found guilty. So are all who stand before Christ. He is the only perfect person who has ever lived. His standard for us is perfection, but we all fall short, each and every one of us. That is why Romans 3 says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks after God. 
all have turned away. They have become together worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. That, my beloved, means we all stand condemned. But it is for such condemned men and women that Christ died. One lesson from the exchange between Pilate and Jesus is the impossibility of a neutral stance where Christ is concerned. Pilate clearly wanted to release him, but he was not a believer in Christ or a follower of Christ. He merely wanted to be innocent of Christ's condemnation, and of course, he felt miserably. Are we okay? What's going on? Oh. You guys pray for Big Allen family. Well, we do pray for Al right now. You would touch his body and bring his sugar back up, Lord. problem there. Pilate cannot be neutral and neither can we. We must either be for the Lord or against him. Either way, if we are for him, he will strengthen us and enable us to live for him even if we have to go through great trials. Or you can't be against him. No matter how humane, noble, sophisticated or understanding we may consider ourselves to be. Jesus presented Pilate with a choice, and it is the same choice that he offers us. Compromise truth and advance your status in the kingdom of this world, or walk in the light of truth and receive unseen rewards in God's kingdom. Jesus said, if this world was my kingdom, my subjects would be fighting for my honor right now. You see, most kingdoms will do anything they can do to protect their king. This is the unspoken premise in the game of chess, for example. When the king falls, the kingdom is over, and the game is done. Therefore, the king must be protected at all costs. Another notable example comes from the Allied invasion in Normandy. Prime Minister Winston Churchill desperately wanted to join the expeditionary forces and watch the invasion from a bridge on a battleship in the English Channel. Now, U.S. General Dwight Eisenhower was desperate to stop him from doing this for fear that the prime minister might be killed. But when it became apparent that Churchill would not be dissuaded, Eisenhower appealed to a higher authority, King George VI. The king sent and told Churchill that if it was the prime minister's duties to witness the invasion, he could only conclude it was also his duty as king to join him on that battleship. At this point, Churchill reluctantly agreed to back down, for he knew he could not expose the king of England to that kind of danger. But King Jesus did exactly the opposite. With royal courage, he surrendered himself to be crucified. On the cross, he offered a king's ransom, his life for the life of the people. He would die for the, all the wrong things that we have ever done and would do so by completely atoning for all of our sins. 
That crown of thorns that was meant to be a mockery of his royal claims actually proclaimed his kingly dignity even in his death. One theologian said it like this. His was not an empire of matter, but a realm of truth. His kingdom differed widely from that of Caesar. Caesar's empire was over the bodies of men, Christ over their souls. The strength of Caesar's kingdom was in citadels, armies, navies, the towering Alps, and the all-engirding seas. The strength of the kingdom of Christ was and is and will ever be in sentiments, principles, ideas, and the saving power of a divine word. Verse 38, please. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And after saying this, he came out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no grounds at all for charges in his case. Between John 18, 38 and 39, you have the events that are recorded in Luke chapter 23. Pilate's maneuver did not solve his problem because Herod sent Jesus right back. Now, Herod was excited at the opportunity to meet Jesus. He had heard of all the miracles that Jesus had performed and was hoping Jesus might put on a little show for him. Nothing too extravagant, maybe a little levitation or the old pick-a-card-any-card routine. But no deal. Jesus wouldn't even talk to him, much less do any tricks. So Herod, in keeping with his cruel nature, initiated his famous ridicule by dressing Christ in a royal robe, beating him, and sending him back once again to Pilate. We do not know with what attitude Pilate asked the now famous question, what is truth. In his classic essay on truth, Francis Bacon said, What is truth? suggesting Pilate, and will not stay for the answer. But we are not certain that Pilate was jesting. Perhaps he was sincere. You see, for centuries, Roman and Greek philosophers had discussed and debated this very question, and they had not come to any kind of settled conclusion. So whether Pilate was sneering in derision, or sign and disillusionment as he asked the question, we don't know. And so it would be unwise to pass judgment on that. But let's just call a spade a spade. The world we live in today really does not want truth. They want tolerance. As long as tolerance is a one-way street that embraces every kind of vile depravity. Even better, if we could just do away with all religion, man will eventually work out all its problems and usher in a utopia. It's the Beatles' philosophy of imagine there's no heaven. If you recall how the song goes, Lennon asks us to imagine what a world without heaven, hell, or religion would look like. What a peaceful place it would be, Lennon warbles, once people have nothing left to fight over or murder each other over. But as the song Imagine comes to a close, Lennon admits that perhaps he's a dreamer for imagining such an utopia. But hey, wouldn't that be amazing? Water world. Just imagine. Yet for all of his pleading, I can tell you that Lennon was a dreamer whose talent for hypocrisy knew few bounds, not least of because of Imagine's other laughable cry for people to surrender their possessions 
and share everything. I mention this not because I'm a money-grabbing capitalist, but because it's a bit, pardon the pun, rich, coming from a man who died with a net worth of $800 million. Lennon was also famous for having a violent temper, lashing out of his wife, fellow band members, and even journalists on occasions. All of which makes those lines about peace and love also ring just a bit hollow. In the book that I read that in, the author added this fabulous footnote. He said, it's also somewhat ironic that I couldn't quote Imagine's actual lines without paying hundreds of dollars per line, even those lines that talked about having no greed or possessions. Sometimes you just can't make this stuff up. But back to what is truth. Romans 1 tells us that there are people who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. What does that mean? Well, think of it this way. Think of it as a hijacking. A plane is flying to a designated destination, say New York to Dallas, but a hijacker can come out of the plane, put a gun to the pilot's head, and make him fly to Iran. In the same way, Paul argues, truth is truth with its own God-given reality and logic, but someone who refuses to believe in God is attempting to hijack that truth and force it to fly to their own destination. In this sense, all non-Christian belief holds the truth in unrighteousness by seeking to conform truth to its desires. Imagine that, pun intended. Verse 39, however you have a custom that I release one prisoner for you at the Passover, therefore do you wish that I release for you the king of the Jews? So they shouted again, saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a rebel. First thing I'd like to point out is this happened at the Passover. The end of verse 38 had Pilate declaring Jesus completely innocent of all charges. In the instructions for the observance of the Passover, occurring in Exodus 12 and other parts of the Old Testament, there is a detail that has some bearing on the outcome of the trial of Christ before Pilate. Those passages tell us that the lamb was, that was to be killed in observance of the Passover was to be completely without blemish. In order to make sure that it was without blemish, it was to be kept in a home for three days prior to the sacrifice, during which time it was to be carefully examined. And only when it was known to be completely flawless was it to be used in the Passover ritual. This has bearing upon the trial of the Lord Jesus before Pilate, because in the plan of God, Pilate is now looking at Christ and finding he has no fault in him who is the true Passover lamb. It was he who died that the angel of spiritual death might pass over all of us who trust in his sacrifice. He was examined to this end and found to be completely without blemish. And throughout human history, any honest seeker will come to that same conclusion. I find no fault in him. Any truly honest seeker who will just read the four Gospels will come away with that same conclusion. Now, according to the custom of Pod's predecessors, one man could be released from prison during the Passover festival. Pilate thought he could tempt the mob into releasing Jesus by giving them a less attractive option. I mean, certainly, they would choose to release an innocent man rather than invite the wrath of Caesar. 
But Pilate greatly underestimated the religious leader's hatred for Christ. So Pilate therefore searched through his mind to recall some criminal so notable that were they to make the choice between this one and Jesus, the criminal would never be chosen by the people. He instantly thought of Barabbas, who we are told was an insurrectionist and a murderer. Matthew says he was a notorious prisoner. Who, Pilate thought, would refer this vile rebel and murderer to the one in whom he had found no guilt at all? A murderer or the Messiah? An insurrectionist or a resurrectionist? You would have thought the choice would have been simple. Now, Barabbas is an Aramaic word meaning son of a father, bar meaning son, and Abba meaning father. Abba is also the name of a 70s disco band. But that's not what we're talking about this morning. So the word itself signifies that Barabbas is a representative type of all the sons of all the fathers who have ever been born into this world. As Donald Gray Barnhouse, Barnhouse writes in his valuable commentary, we are all of Adam's race. We have been bound over for our sedition against God. We are robbers of his glory. We are murderers of our souls and the souls of others. Paul was, of course, in surprised at the crowd's choice. But how did Barabbas feel about all of this? Well, Matthew chapter 27 helps us there. The praetorium was no more than 1,500 feet from the Tower of Antonia. And Barabbas, because he was a prominent prisoner, was incarcerated in the bowels of Antonia awaiting crucifixion. Now, he could not have heard Pilate, but it would have been impossible for him not to have heard the roaring of that crowd. Here is Pilate's dialogue with the crowd. Imagine you are Barabbas this morning as you listen to this. Every time I say the word crowd, that is all you would hear if you were Barabbas. Pilate, which of the two men do you want me to release to you? Crowd, Barabbas. Pilate, what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? Crowd, crucify him. Pilate, why, what crime has he committed? Crowd, shouting all the more, crucify him. Pilate, washing his hands, I am innocent of this man's blood. It is your responsibility. Crowd, that his blood be on us and upon our children. So why did Barabbas hear that morning? He heard his name, Barabbas. And then crucify him, then again crucify him, and finally heard, let his blood be on us and on our children. Even as hardened a criminal as Barabbas was, he must have grown faint. He must have looked at the palms of his hands and wondered how it would feel to have those nails ripping through his flesh. He must have remembered all the scenes of crucifixion he had seen and the agony of the victims who suffered sometimes for two or three days before death mercifully came to release them. Then he heard the sound of that key in the lock and felt even greater terror. But suddenly, out of nowhere, he was released from his chains and told he was free to go. He was probably in a daze when he emerged into that sunlight. Eventually he would probably learn that Jesus died in his place. That means that Barabbas was the only man in the world who could say that Jesus Christ took his physical place. 
But I can say that Jesus Christ took my spiritual place. For it was I who deserved to die. It was I who deserved the wrath of God to be poured out upon me. I deserved eternal punishment in the lake of fire. But he was delivered up for my offenses. He was handed over to judgment because of my sins. This is why we speak of the substitutionary atonement. Christ was our substitute. He was satisfying the, de the debt of divine justice and holiness. Once more, Dr. Barnhouse. I say that Christianity can be expressed in the three phases. I deserved hell. Jesus took my hell. There is nothing left for me but heaven. So as we finish up this morning, all I can tell you is I know that God has the power to change us through his truth. There was once a man named Bill. This isn't me, by the way. This Bill grew up in a very anti-Christian home. When it came to the things about God, their minds were completely clamped shut. In fact, his mother once told him, I don't care if you become a drug addict or a bank robber or a drunk or if you bring home a boyfriend instead of a girlfriend. There's just one thing I don't want you to become, and that's a Christian. This is more that tolerance I mentioned earlier. Anyway, as a young man, Bill adopted a lifestyle consistent with his atheism. Since there was no God, he was free to do whatever he wanted to do. So in his quest for pleasure, Bill lived a life of sexual conquest and free living. In his desire for money to buy things to make himself happy, he worked to the point of exhaustion. In an attempt to escape the despair of thinking that there's no real purpose in life or anything beyond the grave, he drank heavily and took drugs. But one day, in the midst of, or perhaps because of, he looked at his life and he prayed to the God that he had always rejected this simple prayer. Please get me out of this mess. After being startled in a dream one night, he went to an all-night bookstore at his home in San Francisco. Under a stack of porno magazines, he found a Bible, the very book he had always criticized but really never tried to honestly understand. He went home and began reading the Gospel of Luke, and he became convinced of three things. First, Jesus is who he claimed to be. Second, that Bill mattered to God. And third, that he needed to choose how he was going to live his life. So he made his decision on January 25, 1980. After three decades of hopeless atheism, he said a prayer that wasn't very eloquent, but it did express his heart. He prayed, Jesus, I want to be with you instead of what I am doing. Today's a Baptist pastor. Now, you probably never heard of Bill, but you have heard of his mother. You see, Bill's full name is William J. Murray, and his mother was none other than Madeline Murray O'Hare who had used Bill as the plaintiff in the Supreme Court case that outlawed prayer in school. So to answer his pilot's question, what is truth? Truth isn't a what, it's a who. And it's him who said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through me. Let us pray. And this morning we acknowledge that, Lord, you are the only way. We have tried our way and found it bankrupt. You are the truth. We live in a world where good is called evil and evil is called good. And you are the life. As your scripture says, the life that is truly life.
Reveal yourself this morning in whatever capacity we stand in need of, whether it's a savior, a sanctifier, or a strengthener. We ask that you'd also bless the food we're about to receive and the fellowship that we're going to enjoy. We ask this in the matchless name of Christ, our soon-coming King. Amen. God bless you guys. If you want to start.